Elijah lived in a society that was growing more and more sinful. Elijah lived in a society that was rejecting God all the more. He lived in a country where the leaders were leading the nation away from the things of God and into the things of sin. Any of that sound familiar? And in the midst of that, Elijah lived a life of righteousness, obedience, and power. The power of God worked in Elijah and worked through Elijah in order to accomplish amazing things in the kingdom of God. And we want that to be true in our lives as well, don't we? You'll notice that the title of this sermon series is Elijah, Ordinary Person, Extraordinary God. That comes from a verse in the New Testament about Elijah. James chapter 5, verse 17, that says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Elijah was not a god. Elijah was not an angel. Elijah was not a superman. Elijah was a person like us. And yet, God's power worked in him and through him in amazing, miraculous, and powerful ways. And the implication of James chapter 5 is, the same can be true in your life. The same can be true in your life. How? Well, in order to understand that, and as we move forward for the next few weeks looking at the life of Elijah, it would be really helpful if we set Elijah within his context. If we understood when Elijah lived and what the world was like that Elijah was in. And so I want to take you back a little more than 3,000 years. The nation of Israel is clamoring for a king. God says, you guys, I'm your king. You don't need a human king like these other nations. I'm your king. But the people of Israel say, no, we want to be like the other nations. We want a human king like they have. And so ultimately, God gives them a human king. And what's the name of the first king of Israel? Some of you know this, right? What's his name? Saul, right? And and what's the name of the guy who came after Saul? David, absolutely. And, And David's son who came after David? Solomon, okay, we're getting better as we go along. Look at us go. Oh, wait, this would have made it easier, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Saul, then David, then Solomon. Then what happens after Solomon dies? In a series of accounts that we don't have time to go into today, the nation splits in half. And there is then a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. Now, it is the northern kingdom of Israel that's going to be our focus for the next few weeks because Elijah was a prophet to the northern kingdom. He was a prophet to Israel. What's the name of the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel? His name was Jeroboam. And if you're anything like me, you're like, okay, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, I got a 50-50 here. Right? But Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he had a bit of a quandary. Because people from the northern kingdom of Israel were still supposed to go down to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom and worship God there at the temple. And Jeroboam was afraid, if all of my people from the northern kingdom keep going down to the southern kingdom and worshiping in Jerusalem, they may become sympathetic towards the kings of the south. And ultimately, they may rise up against me and overthrow me. So Jeroboam had an idea. 
I'm going to go ahead and establish places of worship in the northern kingdom so that my people won't go down to the southern kingdom. And so he made a couple of golden calves for them to worship. If you know your Old Testament, you know that the nation of Israel had a little problem with golden calf worship a few generations before in the book of Exodus. And he makes a couple of golden calves and says, here, worship the God of Israel at these golden calves. And he places one way up north at Dan and one down in the southern area of Israel at Bethel. And he tells them, stop going to Jerusalem to worship like God has commanded. Instead, just worship God here at these golden calves. He is breaking the second commandment in doing this, isn't it? Isn't he? Don't make any graven images. We're not supposed to worship God through those kinds of images. And so 1 Kings 13 says that Jeroboam was wicked and sinful in what he did. But it gets worse from there. There are five kings that follow, and you'll notice that some of them didn't reign very long. But all of them were wicked and led the people into greater and greater sin. As a matter of fact, uh, all of them are spoken of in language like we see in 1 Kings 15, 26. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the sin which he made Israel to sin. The people who were leading Israel were leading it further and further away from God and further and further into the things of sin. But then things get much, much worse. In 873 B.C., a man named Ahab becomes king of Israel. And he is worse than all of those before. Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all of those who were before him. What is it about Ahab and the way he led Israel that was worse than all of the kings before? Well, the next couple of verses tell us. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Why was Ahab worse than all of the kings that were before him? Because all of the kings that were before him led Israel into disobedience to God's commandments, but they were still leading Israel to worship God. Yes, worship the God of Israel. Worship him in these wrong ways, these ways that he has commanded us not to worship him, but they're still leading Israel into worship of the God of Israel. Ahab is the first king that says, you know what? We should really mix a little worship of some other gods in here. And he begins the people down the path of worshiping Baal, of worshiping other false gods. Now we may think that the worship of Baal isn't particularly applicable in our day and age. How many of us are going to worship a statue that looks like a bull? Very, very few of us. But when we look at what is behind the worship of Baal we will see that, in fact, it's very applicable to our day and our age. It is during this time, as Ahab is leading people into wickedness, that Elijah appears upon the scene. No introduction. He just appears in the, in the throne room of Ahab, 
And we read, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Elijah strides into the courtroom of Ahab and into the pages of our Bible without much introduction at all. We know that he is from Tishbe, which is a wilderness area east of the Jordan River. It is in the middle of nowhere. Have you ever heard him say about someone who lives in the sticks, they got to go toward town to hunt? Have you ever heard that? Yeah, they they live so far out in the boonies, they got to go toward town to hunt. That's Elijah growing up in Tishbe. He is in the middle of the wilderness, and he appears in the throne room of Ahab, dressed in camel's hair, wild hair, wild beard, and he makes a pronouncement. There is a real and living God. I know him and I serve him, and it will not rain again until I say so. There is a real and living God. I know him and I serve him and it will not rain again until I say so. I believe that in this very first verse, in the introduction to Elijah, we see the key to why Elijah lived a life of righteousness and obedience and the power of God worked so thoroughly in him and through him. And what is that key? What is that key to living a powerful life for God in the midst of a society that is rejecting him? I think the answer to that that we see in this verse is single-minded devotion to the one true God. Elijah has single-minded devotion to the one true God. He's not dabbling with a little bit of worship to God and following God, and then he's got a little bit of priority over here and a little bit of priority over here. No, Elijah is totally focused on worshiping God and following after him. Everything about him is about following after God. We see it in his name. Uh, Names mean more in the Bible than they do in our society. And what does Elijah's name mean, Elijah? It means Yahweh is my God. Right? Yahweh is my God. Elijah wants to make sure that everybody knows. Right? Perhaps his parents brought him up in this. Gave him the name, uh, Yahweh is my God. He says, I stand before the living God. A Hebrew word that means to be rooted. Right? I have rooted my life before the living God in his very presence. Elijah is absolutely single-minded in his devotion to God. Israel stands in contrast to Elijah. Israel is double-minded. If Elijah is single-minded in his devotion to God, what we see from Israel is that they are double-minded. Yeah, they still participate in the worship of the God of Israel, but now they also participate in the worship of Baal, and they also participate in the worship of some other gods. Whatever they can grab in order to help them with life, we'll worship a little of this God and a little of that God, and they are double-minded, unlike Elijah. Baal worship was all about a desire to have wealth a desire to be comfortable and have security. Baal was the god of fertility. Yes, human fertility. If I wanted a lot of kids, you worship Baal because he was the god of fertility. But more than that, Baal was the god of crop fertility. And in an agricultural society, what is crop fertility all about? 
It's about wealth and security and comfort through money. Baal was known as Baal the Bull, God who rode upon the clouds. And it was believed through worshiping him that he would send the rain, that he was in charge of the rain and would produce fertile crops for you. And so the real idol behind the worship of Baal was the worship of money, the worship of security, the worship of comfort through wealth. Can you imagine a society where people would dabble in the worship of the one true God, but really invest most of their week in seeking comfort and security through wealth and money? Can you imagine a society like that? The Pew Research Center did a study a month ago in which they asked people who identified as Christians, so take that for what it's worth, people who identified as Christians, what is the most important issue for you in the upcoming election? And among those who identified as Christians, the number one issue that they said they had concern about in the upcoming election, election was economics. The number two issue that they ranked in their greatest concerns in the upcoming election was their ability to keep their financial benefits. Far further down the list were issues of morality, like abortion or racial equality. And so when they asked those who identified as Christians, what is most important to you in this election higher than issues of character, higher than issues of morality, were issues of economics and finance. Why is that? Could it be that we deal with and struggle with some of the exact same double-mindedness that plagued Israel in the time of Elijah? Where our finances are what truly guide us over the course of our weeks? In a recent poll done by the Barna Group, we see that double-mindedness is, in fact, the greatest issue facing the American church today. When they polled those who went to church, what they found was that 70% of people who attend church believe that Jesus is God. 70% of those who attend church, these are all different kinds of churches, believe that Jesus is God. 68%, so about 70% of those who attend church believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead. And in the same survey, when that group of people are asked, what is the most important thing in your life? 15%, one five, 15% said, my relationship with God is the most important thing in my life. I'm not great with numbers, but what does that tell us? That tells us that within the American church, there are a whole lot of double-minded people who have some sort of faith up here, but not a biblical faith that translates into a changed life. 70% say we believe that Jesus is God and that he literally rose from the dead. 15% say my relationship with God is the most important thing in my life. That's immense double-mindedness. By the way, in that same survey where 15% said that their relationship with God was the most important thing in their life. 51% said that their family was the most important thing in their life. And it becomes clear to us, doesn't it, why Jesus on more than one occasion said, if you love father or mother, son or daughter more than me, you are not worthy to be my disciple. 
because Jesus wanted to deal with the things he knew would be the primary idols of our hearts. Jesus wants single-minded devotion from his followers. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Jesus says the kingdom is of unequal, unrivaled value. And when a person finds it, they will give up everything else in order to gain the kingdom. He says those who gain the kingdom are those who lose their lives. Those who are willing to lose their lives and their way of living are those who gain genuine life in Christ. Those who are willing to pick up their cross and follow him are those who are living as disciples of Jesus. Jesus says, I want single-minded devotion. No idolatry. No one even as a close second when it comes to your priorities. Which leads us to the natural question, are you involved in that kind of single-minded pursuit of God? Do you, like Elijah, stand with God where he is your priority and there is nothing that is a close second as you go through your daily life? Do we have that kind of single-minded devotion? If you're here today and you're like, yes, I have that kind of single-minded devotion and I want more of that, then I have some promises that are illustrated in the rest of the verses for our passage that I want to share with you about our God. Promise number one. Actually, let's read the passage first, and then we'll get to promise number one. The rest of our passage says, And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. We see illustrated here in these verses some promises about God that I want you to understand if you are single-minded in your devotion to him. And the first promise is this. Our God is in control. What is it that Baal was the God of again? He, he was the God of crop fertility, the God who brought the rains. And what does Elijah go and announce? It will not rain again until God says so through me. Why? Because God wants his people to understand, I am the one who is in control. I am the Lord God, and there should be no idols in your life. Now, now this is an unpleasant lesson, isn't it? If it's not going to rain for three and a half years, what's going to happen? Crops are going to dry up and die. Animals that people are raising are going to die. People are going to grow hungry and have to search for water sources. This is an unpleasant lesson. So why would God do this? Because far more important to God than daily nourishment is the fact that people will acknowledge he's the one who is in control and pursue him with single-minded devotion. And he's going to teach his people that lesson through some challenging times here. Our God is the one who is in control. We live during a time in which there are people who are making idols of politics and politicians. And no matter who is elected in three weeks, in the thousands of elections that are going to go on across this country, we as believers still know the one who is ultimately in control. 
We live in a time when people are making idols of wealth and finance. And even though people will think of those who have riches as those who are in control, as believers we understand, no, no, we know the one who is genuinely in control of all things. And so as you pursue God with a single-minded devotion, I want you to understand the promise. You pursue a God who is in control. Second, you pursue a God who will provide for you. If you're single-minded in your devotion for God, you are pursuing a God who has promised to provide. Elijah sends, or God sends Elijah to this brook in this remote area all by himself. You think working from home is challenging for a few months. Elijah gets to spend three years hanging out by this brook with nothing to do except wait for the ravens to come and deliver his food. What is God providing during this challenging time by the brook? God is providing exactly what Elijah needs. He's providing protection for Elijah. When you walk into the king's throne room and you declare it's not going to rain anymore until I say so, what do people think of you? They think you're crazy. They think you're wacko. And then after a couple of months when it hasn't rained, what happens? After several months of it not raining, what happens? What we're going to see is Ahab and his wife Jezebel want to kill him. They think that he is responsible for this, and they want to put him to death. And so God takes him and hides him away for three years next to this brook as the rain stops. But God doesn't just provide protection for Elijah in this. He provides nourishment for him as well, doesn't he? As he miraculously brings meat and bread to Elijah every morning and every evening. And what I want you to understand, follower of Jesus Christ, is that God has made the same promise to you if you are single-minded in your devotion to him. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. For the person who is single-minded in their pursuit of God, God promises, I will provide for every need that you have. I will perfectly provide for every need that you have. Now let's be clear. There is no such promise for the person who is double-minded. For the person who is dabbling in a little bit of worship with God, but is actually pursuing these other things more in their life, there is no promise for provision. The promise is for the person who does what? Seeks first the kingdom of God above anything and everything else. That is who the promise is for. God says, if that's you, if you're seeking first the kingdom of God, if you are single-minded in your devotion, then you will be provided for everything that you need. Now, now it's probably worth us noting at this point, God has promised to provide perfectly for our needs, but not necessarily for our wants, right? As we look at Elijah in the weeks to come, we're going to see that he is a man of action, that he's a man of confrontation. How excited do you suppose he was about going and hiding for three years? Not only that, he's a prophet of Israel, being fed by ravens. According to the Old Testament, what are ravens? They're unclean. They're unclean animals that are bringing him all of his food. How do you suppose he felt about that? 
But beyond that, have you ever watched what ravens pick up off the street? Right, what kind of meat and bread do you suppose they were bringing? Uh, maybe it was, you know, T-bones that he got to roast and fresh baked bread, but that's not usually what ravens pick up and bring. I, I'm not sure that this met all of Elijah's wants, but what we're going to see in the weeks to come is that this experience was exactly what Elijah needed in order to prepare him for his next assignments. God gave him exactly what he needed in order to prepare him for what was to come. Because our God will provide perfectly for all our needs if we're single-minded in our devotion to him. And and the final promise that I want us to see is that if you are single-minded in your devotion, our God will grow you. Our God is going to work in your life and he is going to help you to grow. The name Kareth, the brook that he is sent to, in the Hebrew means to cut away or to prune. And that is precisely what God does in this valley with Elijah. He prunes him and helps him to grow. I just listed a couple of ways that I thought Elijah was grown by God during this time. God grows Elijah in humility. As I said before, Elijah is a man of action, a man of confrontation. What do you suppose it took for him to go and hide for three years? Elijah probably thought himself as a significant player in this contest between God and Baal. And God takes this significant player and benches him for three years. What's he building into Elijah during this time? Elijah's not even getting to provide for himself in any way. Guys, if you're there, there'd at least be some sense of accomplishment, right? If you were hunting and fishing and providing your own food... And God says, Elijah, I want you to go and sit by that brook. And you're not going to hunt. You're not going to fish. I'm just going to bring you food. And God grows humility within Elijah, the kind of humility and dependence that will be necessary for the assignments that God has ahead of him. God grows Elijah's faith. It was a big step of faith for Elijah when God says, I want you to go and sit by this brook, and I'm going to take care of everything. Really? How? Would anyone anyone want more details to that plan? How long am I going to be there? What's it going to be like? What exactly are the ravens going to be bringing me? But he goes in faith and is obedient to God, and God responds in faithfulness, but then challenges Elijah to even greater faith. Did you see what the very last verse we read said? What did it say? That while Elijah was there, The brook dried up. The brook dried up. He's there for three years watching the brook dry up. A little less water, month after month after month. All the while saying, God, what's next? What's your next plan for provision for me? What's your next assignment for me? And God is silent this entire time. He doesn't tell Elijah what's next or how he's going to provide for him next. Eventually, there's just this tiny trickle of water coming down between the rocks. Perhaps Elijah's having to dig to try and find fresh water, and yet God hasn't told him what's next. He waits, as he often does, till the very last minute in order to test Elijah's faith. He says, I've called you to this place. Stay there. Stay there. I'll provide when it's time. And he grows Elijah's faith through this process. And certainly he grows Elijah's patience during this time. 
As we see Elijah as a man of action and a man of confrontation, I got to believe that when he was told to go hide at this brook, Elijah's immediate thought was, can I get out of here? How quickly can I get on to the next thing? Elijah's a prophet whose goal was to turn the hearts of the people away from the worship of Baal and back to worshiping the one true God and him alone. He has this prophet to-do list. And how many items is he getting to check off of his prophet to-do list during this three-year period of time? Nothing. But God is growing him in patience during this time. Patience he will need as he deals with a hard-hearted and stubborn people as their prophet. These are just a couple of the ways that God grows Elijah. We'll actually see more next week. But the point is, when we are single-minded in our devotion to God, he goes to work in our life and he grows us. He changes us and transforms us. We can see how this worked in people's lives over the last seven months. There are within the American church people who are double-minded. And their double-minded is expressed through constant frustration about things that aren't related to Jesus or the gospel. They're not central to the gospel. But you can also see people within the church who are single-minded. And they have taken these last seven months as their own personal careth experience, growing in their relationship with God as they spend time with him in the midst of these trials and challenges that we face. What has been your experience over the last seven months? Has it been characterized by single-minded devotion or double-mindedness? What will the months to come look like? Will they be characterized primarily by single-minded devotion in our lives? Are you involved in that kind of pursuit of God? Are you like Elijah, where God is the priority in absolutely everything you do, and there is nothing that is even close in second place? As Pastor Kenny and I were talking this week, we were talking about teaching this passage, and we were both saying, this is what we want. This is what we want in our lives, this kind of single-minded devotion to God. But this is what we want as a part of a church where we're pastors. We want people who are single-minded in their devotion to God. More than anything else, that is what we want in people, single-minded devotion to God. The greatest issue in Israel during the time of Elijah was double-mindedness versus single-minded devotion. The greatest issue in the church in America today is double-mindedness versus single-minded devotion. And we want more than anything here at Friendship Church to buck the trend within American Christianity that is seeking more and more things in a double-minded way. We want to be a single-minded people pursuing Jesus and the gospel above anything and everything in life. If God is working in your life today, if he's working in you in order to say, I need this kind of single-minded devotion as something new in my life, or maybe he is saying, I need a renewed sense of single-minded devotion towards the Lord, let me encourage you to go ahead and express that in some way this morning. Perhaps it's by telling somebody else when the service is over, hey, I want to be like Elijah. I want to be single-minded in my devotion to God. 
Maybe it's by coming and praying with the prayer ministers when the service is over and say, would you guys pray for this for my life? I would encourage you to take the Connect card that Jeremy talked about earlier and write single-minded on it if that is what you want us to be praying for for you over the course of this week. And we will pray for that single-minded devotion in your life because we need prayer and we need support if that's going to be us. And I want to pray for us right now that that would be us as a community and that that would be us as people. Would you join me in that prayer? Father, as we come before you, we want to be people who are like Elijah. God, we don't want to be like the Israelites who dabble in a little bit of worship with God here, who simply uphold some traditions that our parents and grandparents held. We want to be people who are fully committed and fully devoted to you, where there is nothing that is even remotely close in second place, where you're the one who ultimately forms each and every decision in our life. And so, Father, we ask that you'd be at work in our hearts as a church, continuing to grow us, continuing to work in us as we pursue you with that single-minded devotion. And as we do, we ask that you would work this power, power we see in Elijah for righteousness and obedience, power we see work through Elijah in order to do amazing things in your kingdom. Work that power in and through our lives as we pursue you in single-minded devotion. In Jesus' name, amen.